Welcome to the Better Frost Decisions podcast for 2023. I'm your host, Tanya Morgan, and on the show today, our first episode in this limited series, we're focusing on frost from the perspective of the choices and decisions we make at the beginning of the cropping season. In particular, we're chatting to our podcast regular principal scientist for climate applications at SARDI, Peter Heyman about decision-making and how we deal with the risk around some of the choices we make at seeding. We also talked to Peter about the chance of an El Nino and the probability of those conditions happening in spring. What does this mean for frost? We then jump across to the east of the country to get an update from Max Bloomfield. Max is the research manager at Field Applied Research, better known as Far Australia. And with Max, we discuss how we could manipulate flowering time using agronomic practices. Finally, we chat to Bonnie Floor, who'll update us on optimal flowering time, targeting the optimal window in different regions. If you're listening to this episode today, chances are you've been affected by frost. Some definitely cop it more than others, but the result is the same for all of us affected. We feel failure, frustration, and just fed up. So we hope you'll stick around for the season and join us as we take you on the journey of what's new in frost research, check out what others are doing to deal with it on a day-to-day basis and support growers in the southern region to make better frost decisions. Time to catch up with Peter Heyman. Last year was a very different year to what we normally see. It was a very wet spring. We didn't see a lot of frost around. But coming into this year, we're going to talk about the GRDC National Risk Management Initiative. Thinking about frost means that you're having to make risky decisions. So welcome, Peter. Great to have you back on the show this year. What's been happening in the National Risk Management Initiative space? Yeah, so I think this is a an exciting, big opportunity that GRDC is pushing forward and farming assistance groups are really leading this. So it's really from grower groups around the country, their issues are. But the general idea is how do we, how do we deal with risky decisions better? Grain farming is full of risky decisions. And in some ways, farmers rightly prefer grains research to come up with bulletproof solutions. So it'd be wonderful if research could come up with a frost tolerant wheat or a wheat that could suffer very cold temperatures and have very little damage. There is work going into that, and there will likely be improvements there, but it's very unlikely that we're going to get this magic bullet for that. And there are cases with diseases and other things where we have got ways where varieties have solved problems like that and so on. When it comes to frost, all researchers, advisors, and especially growers dealing with frost would acknowledge that this is a risky decision. It's it, the frost varies across the landscape and frost varies from year to year and frost risk pushes against these other risks of heat and moisture stress. And so getting the balancing with frost, there's rewards for flowering earlier, but there can be penalties for that as well. And growers are really aware of that. And it's a classic, it really is a classic risky decision. I guess coming off of a pretty good season last year and there's been frost, but it hasn't been devastating frosts in the last 12 months, given how wet it was. How do you think 
farmers think about frost coming into this season? Because usually we tend to see people refer back to their latest experience. Good question, Tanya. All of us, and I'm, we, we all have a recency bias. It's how our brains work. Recent events have an effect on us. I imagine that there are plenty of growers who are in regions or farms or have areas of their paddocks that are very frost prone and they'll be aware of that, be very aware of that. But then there's other people where frost is a much more intermittent problem and, and comes along and whacks them occasionally. But, and I'm sure that there are lots of complex decisions here, but as we talk about the chance of El Nino and drier conditions, so last year was La Nina, there was a famous triple La Nina and the wetter conditions, wetter conditions, overcast, cloudy, rainy days, wet soils lead to less frost, El Nino, clear nights and drier conditions tend to lead to frostier conditions. And I'm sure that many people would rightly associate dry conditions and frost and associate dry springs with more with frost damage. And that's correct because the two go together. In Australia, we have radiation frosts and these radiation frosts in, in the grains regions are on cold, clear, still nights. And we get more of those in an El Nino than we do in a La Nina. So I guess you're talking a lot about an El Nino event. What are we looking at for this year? So is the prediction that we are going to see an El Nino this year? Yeah, so it's, I guess there's two, two aspects to this. What, one is that we know that the chance of El Nino this year has increased. So the Bureau now has it at an El Nino, an El Nino watch, which is 50% chance. So we knew nothing. We'd say, just using long-term records, we'd say there was a one in four chance of El Nino developing in any year. It's doubled to 50%. And the indications you, from what I pick up from climate scientists is that most of them would even rate a little bit higher than that. So no guarantee we could, we, it could back off, but things tend, because this time of year is not an easy time to, to really know whether going to El Nino. So just a really good reminder for all of us is my friend and colleague in Victoria, Graham Anderson, who uses the illustration of your favorite footy team. Crow supporters or whatever will be very confident about what's going to happen for their team in March, April, and into May. And as you get into July, August, you have reality comes to, to affect you a lot more. It's a little bit similar with El Nino. The, when someone's talking confidently about what's going to happen in El Nino or La Nina, it's good to just remember the football analogy of your favorite team, that your confidence greatly increases, your information greatly increases as you get through winter and into late winter and then spring. So that, that's a really important factor. However, we can say something about teams early on, and we can say something about El Nino early on. It's just to be more we have to be careful and clearly that the likelihood of El Nino does increase. Now, this is going to just sound classic researcher complicating everything, but the problem is that yes, it's true that an El Nino means clearer skies and more, and more likelihood of frost. 
unfortunately, we can get these late spring frosts that do so much damage in El Nino years, we can get them in neutral years, we can get them in La Nina years. Also, we can have El Nino years where there aren't any frosts. So what we do is we change the odds a bit in an El Nino year, but that's all we're doing. So again, a little bit like it would be wonderful to have a bulletproof variety that would, that would be able to withstand frost. It would also be wonderful to have a bulletproof forecast that we could say something confidently about spring frosts this early on. Unfortunately, that's not the case. What we have is we change the odds and surprisingly, so you change the odds of the number of frosts much more than the date of these late spring frosts. So if we're just playing betting games, you're much more likely to win your money by just betting on there being more frost. But unfortunately for grain growers, it's not really the number of frosts or the frost through July and so on. It is the spring frosts that do so much damage. And the information for those is weaker. And so that's what we've been saying during the, during, we've had a triple La Nina. So yes, last year wasn't very frosty, but some of the previous years it was severe frost damage. So we can get La Nina and have bad frost damage. El Nino increases the odds a bit. And as growers will also acknowledge, the trick with frost is that you're balancing the damage from frost and heat and water. And so the problem with El Nino information is that it doesn't, it, it tells us we're going to get more frost, but also more heat and more moisture stress. So it doesn't actually resolve my problem of when to flower because it tells me in one sense, flower later because it's El Nino but then flower earlier because I've got moisture and heat stress. What I would say is that with El Nino likelihood is that maybe a really frosty part of the paddock is be really cautious about that, having options of hay or even considering grazing, grazing options there and so on, or, or pasture there and so on. But the notion of using late flowering to solve El Nino isn't wise because late flowering puts you into heat and moisture stress, and we know they increase with El Nino. So I think late flowering to avoid frost never works that way, and it certainly doesn't work well with El Nino. Mm, it really does highlight the complexity of the decision-making that needs to go on. So as part of the risk initiative then, how do we frame these discussions with farmers to help them make better decisions around frost? Yeah, I think what the risk initiative is doing is saying, how do we talk through the upside and downside of these decisions? How do we weigh the upside and the downside? It's the idea of the risk initiative is to acknowledge because we don't know what's going to happen. Let's think of a range of outcomes and weigh the upside versus the downside and then make the decision rather than think of a single outcome. And the temptation with El Nino discussion is we think of a single outcome of a dry, very dry, very frosty spring. That's one outcome. We need to say that the likelihood of that increased a bit, but there's also a range of outcomes and we need to talk through those range of outcomes and then make the decision rather than thinking of a single outcome. 
I guess that's a really important point to make. It's having more information behind your decision. You may end up making a decision. It may not be the right decision in hindsight, depending on what the season does, but it's based on better information at the time. And hopefully people just have more confidence in that whole decision-making process. And maybe you just don't beat yourself up so much at the end of the season when things don't go right. You were working on the best information you had at the time. Spot on. I think that's really important. It's what, so it's this distinction between good decisions and lucky or unlucky decisions. You can make good decisions and Frost is a really good example of this, isn't it? You can make good decisions with all the best information at the time and then you can be unlucky. And I agree that sometimes people are too harsh on themselves after the event when they were just unlucky. And sometimes, me at least, I tend to, when I'm lucky, I tend to assume that's because I made a good decision, but I could have actually made a, a very risky decision and just been lucky, a very poor decision and just been lucky in, in, in that case. So I think distinguishing between what's good decisions and good decisions are getting all the information available at the time and weighing up the upside and downside and trying to work out what we do. Because this is one of our superpowers as humans is we can sit there and look at the upside and downside and think it through. We can time travel and think, how would I feel with this? How would I feel about this? And why? And so there's no perfect answer. Some growers may prefer to avoid a risk and some growers may take on more risk in different situations, totally depending on, on, on their situation. And so there's no right answer to these things and so on. We'll see where this unfolds over the next four to five years in this space. The GRDC National Risk Initiative has only just launched. There are a number of action research groups working in the southern region, and I dare say Frost will be fairly high on the priority list of risky decisions that, that we will be discussing. Watch this space, but we're going to continue talking to you throughout the year and look more at how we make those decisions, better decisions when it comes to weather indicators and particularly with frost in this project. Anything else you want to say about the season looking ahead? I think it's just worth repeating that the football analogy and just as the football season is well and truly in place and we're starting to see results happen, what's going to happen with El Nino and so on is worth watching and be careful about having old news. Watch what's happening. And the Bureau website, the break that Dal Gray does with JDC and so on are really good ways to keep up to date with, with what's happening because now is the time where things start changing and we start getting more indication. Obviously, the problem for that is that's more helpful for top dressing than some sewing decisions, but it's a case of, I mean, that's just the way it is, that El Nino information tends to develop through the winter period for spring and give us more confidence than early on in, in autumn. But the Bureau has released this El Nino watch, and El Nino does affect the Mali, and it's worth just bearing in mind that that's there. That's a really good summary, Peter. And my favourite football team, the Crows, only lost to Collingwood by one point on the weekend, so I still think that there's a good chance that 50-50 they might still get up at the end of the season. So hopeful that El Nino in our neck of the woods doesn't hang around either. Excellent. 
we will catch up with you later in the season. But yeah, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Our next guest today is Max Bloomfield, Research Manager at FAR, and he's coordinating the GRDC project, Enhancing Frost Tolerance and or Avoidance in Wheat, Barley and Canola through in-season agronomic manipulation. Welcome, Max, to the podcast. What sort of in-season agronomic manipulation are you looking at? Hi, Tanya. Thanks for having me. So we're looking at a few different aspects of in-season agronomic manipulation. So firstly, we're looking at using mechanical defoliation or grazing if you've got livestock, but we're changing this slightly from the traditional sort of grazing phenological timings, if you like, and pushing them further into the development period. And we're also looking at some novel plant growth regulators to change the phenology in the crops as well as Deep Herd over in WA are also on the project looking at some novel cryoprotectants and bactericides to manage the frost damage that are caused by ice nucleating bacteria. And then we've also got an aspect of the project run by CSIRO looking at modelling defoliation using the APSIM crop modelling simulator. I think what's exciting about this project is that in the past a lot of the frost work has focused on finding some sort of genetic tolerance to frost. But the things you're looking at are agronomic solutions that if they're proven to work, farmers can pretty much adopt these pretty soon. So what's been, what's, what has frost been like since you've been involved and have you made any discoveries at this stage? You mentioned about quick adoption if this does work and I suppose the sort of crux of the project, it's a lot easier to adopt this using just a single cultivar, being able to be sown at any time. And then if you have these agronomic tools in your toolbox, that you'd be able to use these on an early sown, quick developing cultivar and still make the most of a potential early break in a season without having to try and source a slower developing cultivar if you don't already have that in the silos for your sowing program for the year. So since we started the project last year, there wasn't really much frost. It was a fairly mild and wet year across the country. We also didn't sign the contract until right before May, I think it was last year. And so the field trials we did have in last year weren't in that early sowing window that we're looking to use these manipulating tools in. Combined with the lack of frost, we didn't see any significant responses to any of our treatments last season. But that being said, this season in 2023, we've got our fully protocoled field experiments going in across the country with multiple times of sowing, all the way from early sowing through to late sowing. And so we should get some good responses, especially in that early sowing of the project. We never want to wish a frost in any region, but it would be great to get some real data on whether some of these strategies work because frost will be inevitable at some stage down the track. Based on the fact that you didn't really get much data due to the lack of frost, is there anything we should be keeping a close eye on in your research program? If you were a betting man, what would you place your money on in terms of some of the strategies you're looking at? I think Kenton's already shown in some earlier small projects that he did when he was still over in South Australia that the mechanical defoliation later in the development of the crop 
So when it's in that early stem elongation phase, that it can really delay the phenology. And if you're sowing a quick developing cultivar early and you can defoliate that developing apex, then yeah, the potential for that flowering window to then be pushed back into the optimum window and reducing frost risk. At this stage, I don't think we've seen big responses to the plant growth regulators that we've used in the project so far. That being said, it was more on-time sowing last season anyway and not not early sowing. We'll see if, if anything comes from those. And then, yeah, some interesting work being done by DPERD in that cryoprotectant and bactericide space where, yeah, I think they've seen some interesting responses to some of the novel products that they've been testing in the lab over there. And so that's going out into the field this season, both over in Western Australia and we'll have a site over in Northeast Victoria as well, so covering both sides of the country there. I note that the project is focused on enhancing frost tolerance or avoidance in wheat, barley and canola. So will all of these treatments be going on all of those crops? Yes. So we have, yeah, foliation treatments in all three crop types, PGR treatments and the DPERD cryoprotectant bactericide work. We'll also be looking at all three of those crop types as well. So where can we follow along? This is more of a research project within GRDC as opposed to an extension project. So, you know, there's no guarantees that any of this will work. But yeah, you know, I think it's important research that needs to be done though. And so, yeah, we'll be tweeting when we can through, through the Far Australia Twitter. And then obviously when we touch base with you at MSF and then we'll try and put out some little results updates at different times as well. Not sure what's in the pipeline in terms of next year's GRDC updates, but we'll try and get along and present some findings if we can. Yeah, we'll definitely be looking on with much interest this year and um, hope to speak to you later in the season. Thanks very much for joining us today, Max. Thanks for having me. It's now over to CSIRO's Farming Systems Research Scientist, Bonnie Floor. Thanks for joining us, Bonnie. Given the fact that we've had a discussion with Peter Heyman about decision-making and frost and how sowing later might be better for frost but sowing earlier is better for heat and moisture stress, we thought it'd be great to talk about flowering time and the importance of that. So give us a quick run-through of what optimal flowering time actually is. Say. In all environments, there exists a period during which wheat must flower in order for grain yield to be maximised. And flowering during the optimal flowering period is critical to grain yield because this is when grain number is determined just prior to and at flowering. Um, And grain yield is most sensitive to stresses during this period. And this includes drought and extreme high and low temperatures. So the whole idea of the optimal flowering period is trying to target the lowest risk of heat, frost and drought to target that in any given season, which is the average of multiple growing seasons. It's complex for growers to make the decisions around when the best time of sowing is. Throw in a whole pile of different crop types that have got lots of different maturity. Where do we start? In order to hit the optimal flowering period, it's really important to align time of sowing and cultivar development type to that sowing opportunity so that it does hit the optimal flowering period. So something like a winter wheat has 
a very wide dot sewing window compared to, say, a fire spring wheat. And this is to do with a vernalisation requirement of the winter wheat, meaning that development doesn't proceed too quickly to hit the optimal flowering period too early, even though it's sown earlier. Whereas the faster spring wheats don't have these vernalisation genes. So development is much quicker. So they have a much shorter optimal sowing period to hit that optimal flowering period. And I guess that's where the far lead work really comes into play. So it's not looking at really delaying sowing for frost avoidance. It's about manipulating some of these faster maturing varieties. One of the key research questions that Max's work is looking at is to determine what the optimal defoliation timing is and at what intensity, so how hard should the wheat be defoliated for yield for a fast spring cultivar in different environments from early emergence. If we have an early sowing opportunity and we sow a fast spring, is it possible to defoliate that wheat and delay development so that it still hits the optimal flowering period and still get a yield that is competitive with a spring wheat sowing at its optimal time and a winter wheat sowing at its optimal sowing time? We've got optimal flowering window, but it doesn't actually mean that we're going to avoid frost or heat or drought. It's just the odds are looking better. It's the combined best bet. You've actually done some work looking at optimal flowering time for a range of regions. Can you give us a quick reminder of what that optimal flowering time is for wheat in the southern region? I recently did a talk on the Air Peninsula, so I had some Air Peninsula examples out. And so for Cleve, for example, the optimal flowering time is between the 7th of September and 18th of September. A slightly drier environment of Minipa has an optimal flowering period of the 22nd of August to the 8th of September. And then Cummins, which is higher rainfall, has quite a similar optimal flowering period to Cleve, which is 8th of September to the 28th of September. And then so some sort of lower rainfall Mallee environment types such as Wakery. The optimal flowering period is the 23rd of August to the 29th of August, so quite a bit earlier compared to some of those EP examples. And as you're heading to higher rainfall, more mild environments such as Tamora in New South Wales, the optimal flowering period is the 25th of September to the 10th of October, quite a bit later compared to those more drought-prone environments. The lower the rainfall, the earlier we need to be on the ball with time of sowing and really trying to get that optimal flowering window done and dusted a lot sooner. So in terms of sowing date, what have you got? So for Wakery, to hit that optimal flowering period of the 23rd of August to the 29th of August, the sowing date range, which is from the earliest possible date to the latest possible date, is the 22nd of April to the 3rd of May to hit that optimal flowering period. I also mentioned Tamora, which had the optimal flowering period of the 25th of September to the 10th of October. And to hit that optimal flowering period with a mid-spring cultivar, the sowing date range was the 4th of May to the 22nd of May. That's great, Bonnie. Thank you very much for that summary. I think that helps to clear a few things up and good to know that there are things we can do during the growing season if you want to try and adapt some things as you go. 
That wraps up our first Better Frost Decisions podcast for 2023. If you'd like to learn more about the topics on the show, head to the link in the show notes for the Better Frost Decisions newsletter for June. This podcast has been brought to you by the GRDC Project, applying current knowledge to inform grower decision-making to mitigate the impact of frost now and in the future. Thanks for joining us.